The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now on Fast, so much for a pause. The Fed chair telling Congress rates are going to need to keep rising to bring inflation down. So Powell says we have a long way to go. Does that mean this recent market rally is on shaky ground? Plus, Biden's blunder one day after Secretary of State Blinken wrapped up meetings in China where progress was made. Biden called Chinese President Xi a dictator. What impact will this off-the-cuff comment have on the U.S.-Beijing relationship? And later, Bitcoin seems to be back. The cryptocurrency surging back above 30,000, jumping nearly 15 percent in just the last two days. What's behind the revival and can it last? We'll debate that. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan and Guy Adami. We start off with a third straight down day for stocks. The Nasdaq leading the losses, seeing its worst day in two weeks. The S&P 500 also closing lower along with the Dow. Fed Chair Jerome Powell warning that the central bank has a, quote, long way to go to fight inflation, signaling there are more rate hikes in store. So should investors take Powell at his word? And if so, does that mean we could be in for a longer cooling off period, Tim? Well, I think Powell ultimately can't help himself to be dovish. And, and I think, you know, today was not a big surprise relative to what we got last week. I also don't think that the market was selling off on Powell. I think the market's selling off on positioning that's gotten really extreme. I mean, and, you know, and interesting because the VIX fell 5% today on a down day. We've had this conversation on the desk, and it's a conversation I've had with different people around the street, which is that hedge funds have been bringing the gross down, which means they've been selling popular longs and they've been covering popular shorts. Some could argue that's part of the reason the market seems like it's broadening. And it also just explains why you actually see um, volatility going lower. I'm sure one of the option gurus, Dan, here has some views on what it means in terms of volatility. But, you know, to me, uh, look, sentiment and momentum indicators certainly favor that equities um, have a place to pull back here. You also have uh, a market which doesn't really believe that we're going into recession. There's no way stocks could be pricing in recession here, is my view. And I think that's part of where we are. I, I just ultimately think it gets back to the market that we have in front of us and the market we have in front of us. Today was a day, and I'll oversimplify it, and this isn't right to oversimplify it, but at least until semis um, start really underperforming Qs or the NASDAQ 100, which really starts to underperform the S&P, then I think the market's going to continue to go higher. Um, today was a day when semis really underperformed the NASDAQ, which really underperformed the S&P. We haven't had a lot of that. Until that trend changes, uh, I think the market's going to continue to stay high. Yeah, you know, we were talking on our call earlier today, and an old Fast Money friend member, Larry McDonald, Bear Traps Report, he had a, a note out talking about the confluence of, of passive investing, which is something that we've talked a lot about, but then also these zero, zero days to expiration options and how vol dampening that combination has been. But it also sets up for a very difficult sort of environment if everyone heads for the door at one time. We did see that today in a handful of names that have been very popular. You know, Tim just mentioned semis, and we're going to hit those um, a bit later. And, and I guess the thing that's kind of interesting to me is that, you know, in 2023, we've actually almost had the inverse of what we had in 2022. Like, I don't think there were too many days last year where we felt there was too much selling panic. Maybe that day in October, right, where we had that huge down day, new 52-week lows, big reversal, and then they, you know, we just didn't have a lot of panic in, in the market. Where, where did the VIX get its height? You know what I'm saying? So, 
you know, right now, it seems like we are just lulled to sleep right here. Um, and so it goes back to some of the concentration. Tim just mentioned the broadening out of the market. I think that's something that a lot of bulls have kind of pointed to. I don't really see it. I don't see it in healthcare. I don't see it in energy. I don't see it in financials. I don't see it in a lot of groups right here. So I still see a lot of risk in about 10 names that make up 25% of the S&P 500 and about 50% of the NASDAQ 100. And that continues to actually have risk as it relates to any deceleration and some of the excitement that we've seen around this AI stuff. Mm-hmm. That could be coming to a theater near you when we get Q3 guidance in, in a month or so. I, I can totally see the whole positioning sort of argument. Um, but at the same time, I think Powell sort of really doubled down on some notions that he didn't have to. He didn't have to go to, he's committed to 2% as the target. 2% is a long way from here. Um, and if, if there was ever a hope of some sort of rate cut, I mean, he really twisted the knife in that notion. I mean, it is gone, I think. So he, he really twisted went out. Twisted the knife. Wow, Mel. I mean, I mean it, it, was sort of, a, it was sort of dead before, but I mean, now it's, it seems to be really, really dead. <laughs> Uh, yes. Wednesday? It's, uh, oh, oh, yeah, it's certain holiday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I thought he really went to places he didn't have to go, in other words. I, I agree. I think part of the pivot, which I, I mean, not pivot, pause, mm-hmm. which I actually don't think they needed to do or should have done, was um, to just, all right, we'll just take a little breath here and we don't need to do anything. He didn't need to say that. I think he could have still been hawkish and mm-hmm. say, you know, Data will continue to tell us what to do, but it would seem we have a ways to go. Something like that. I think we'll see inflation continue to moderate, but we're still really far away from where he needs to be. What we're, I, I do think we're in this lull in the market. We don't really have a ton of earnings news. We don't have a Fed decision yet. Right. We're probably just back and forth for a while until we start to see bank earnings and that's July, uh, July 14th, I think, J.P. Morgan starts bank earnings. Then we'll get a sense on not just what banks are doing, but on the economy and what they're seeing. And I actually think it's going to be okay. So we're in a vacuum, Guy. Uh, so what'd you make of today's action? Being in a vacuum, you know, have you ever turned on that, that vacuum? I mean, it, it, they never smell particularly good, so I personally don't want to be in a vacuum. It sucks up but dirt. What do you this. expect it to smell like? Yeah, well, that's an excellent point by you. Today's vacuum. action makes sense to me. I mean, it makes a lot, you know, Rafael Bostic from the Atlanta Fed, non-voting member, by the way, I mean, he came out, I think it was today, and said, don't, don't expect any cuts uh, for the majority of 2024. I mean, that flies in the face of a lot of what the market's been talking about recently, and I think... Listen, I don't know that some sort Steve has an inkling for sure, but I actually think that the Fed is looking at the stock market and is speaking specifically to the stock market when they say, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not sure what you're looking at, but rates are going to stay elevated for a longer period of time. And you guys and gals better wake up to that fact. So the last three days clearly makes sense to me because I've been bearish for the better part of the year. So we'll see if this continues. But Tim's point about the VIX is spot on. Dan's explanation uh, spot on as well. Something's got to give here for sure. Let's uh, dive into Fed Chair Powell's latest comments and more with our own Steve Leisman. You've been listening in on our conversation, Steve. What, what did you make of his comments today? You know, I think you guys have it exactly right. He, he fairly explicitly endorsed two more rate hikes in day one of these uh, two days of congressional testimony. He said a majority of Fed officials have forecast at least two hikes. That's two thirds of the of the committee. And he did say decisions are going to be made meeting by meeting, but he said it's a pretty good guess that the Fed's going to be hiking 50 more basis points. 16 of the 18 participants on the FOMC wrote down that they they do believe it'll be appropriate to raise rates, and and a big majority believes raise rates twice this year. And, you know, I think that's that's a 
pretty good guess of what will happen if the economy performs about as expected. Powell emphasized, though, the Fed's in no hurry to hike like its sequential meetings uh, as it was doing it with 75 basis point increments uh, back uh, in the summer. The speed is now less important than the level, he said. He he said inflation has moderated somewhat, but still has a long way to go to get to the Fed's 2 percent target on the economy. He said it slowed significantly since last year, but now expanding at a modest pace. Consumers picked up, but housing is weak. Higher rates are slowing business investment and the labor market remains very tight as guys. I was talking about two Fed presidents weighing in with a more dovish outlook. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostock and Chicago Fed President Austin Gillsby, both putting themselves in the wait and see camp, noting that the Fed had done a lot and they both wanted more data on inflation and the economy before deciding what to do in July. Melissa? Steve, I'm curious, when, you, when, when he said and talked about, uh, you know, speed and speed's not very important as it was before, um, it almost seemed like he was laying the groundwork for a potential longer period in which they are going to wait and see. So it could be, you know, beyond two and it could be into next year. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It seemed like he opened the door to that by saying speed is not important right now. Yeah, uh, I, I think that at least creates an every other meeting type of pattern rather than every meeting. Uh, but uh, it, it could go on even longer. I mean, there are people out there that are saying 6%. And, and the question I have, uh, Melissa, which is when I look at the way the futures market, the Fed funds futures market is, is, is uh, priced right now, that next hike is priced in, but the second hike is not. And I just wonder if it is paid for folks to fight the Fed over time. If you go back to when... Powell made that big pivot back in November 2021. Um, Essentially, the market is still down like 14% since then. The market's been fighting the Fed the whole time with a different outlook on inflation, with a different outlook on rates. And I'm not sure it's paid to do that. Guy, you got a question? I do, Steve. I, I look at the yield curve pretty simplistically, but I'm curious as to what you think and maybe what the Fed thinks. I mean, it's two's tens. Went out to 110 basis points, came back to 40 relatively quickly. Here we are sitting here, either side of 92, 93 points inverted, I think headed back north of 1%. You know, people seem to discount at this time, but we've been inverted for quite some time, and we're probably at levels we haven't seen in 40-odd years. Do they look at that, and what do you think it means? They look at it, but they're more interested in the three-month, two-year inversion, which is out there. They don't think the market knows a whole lot or anybody knows a whole lot about what's going to happen in 10 years. And they don't think that's a strong signal. They think a stronger signal uh, based on a paper written by one of the Federal Reserve banks is in that nearer term inversion, uh, which tells you, I think, right now that the market thinks the Fed is not far away from cutting. And by the way, the Fed itself has cuts built in for next year. So for sure, we're nearer the end of the of the cycle as the Fed believes it right now. But the question is, where is that end and what it means for the economy and stocks? There are those who think that the Fed is not going to stop until something breaks. And the only sign that it will really have had a significant effect on the economy to bring down inflation is something like the labor market breaking or something like the stock market, along with perhaps the stock market selling off or some big decline in earnings. I, I, I don't know that the Fed is satisfied with the numbers that would be put off by a soft landing. It would love to have one. But if you don't get the inflation reaction, the Fed, I don't think, is going to stop. I just want to follow up on that point. So if the Fed actually is, show, is, is 
thinking they're going to do some cuts next year. Where do they think that inflation has to be to get to that? Can't be. I mean, it could 2%. be two, but this seems like we are so far he from just said two. two today. I know, but is that real? You don't change now. Steve? No, no, nobody, nobody thinks we're going to two next year. The, the, the best, op, most optimistic outlook is two in two 20, 2025. They think it gets into the threes next year uh, in terms of the core rate. So they think it's a slow process, and they're happy. Remember, uh, and Bostic said this today, that there's a thing that, which Bostic calls passive tightening, which is this. As the inflation rate comes down and the Fed interest rate remains the same, the real rate or becomes more... Uh, restrictive. So, uh, for example, if you have a 5% inflation rate and a 5% funds rate, you're at zero. But if you have a 4% inflation rate and a 5% funds rate, all of a sudden you're at positive real 1%. All right. How's that for quick math on national television? That's excellent. And the hand gesture, that really helped us too. (laughs) Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Couple things here, yeah. real quickly. Pleasure. So David Rosenberg, Rosenberg Research this morning, he had a note out saying 90% of the time during rate hiking cycles that the stock market rallies into it. It's not until after they're done that it starts to sell off, which I think is really interesting. And Dave, into the cycle or through the cycle? Through the cycle. Through the cycle. Through the cycle, and it starts selling off afterwards. And what Steve just said, that quick math, I can do some quick math too. The Fed funds rate back in 2018, remember the last time Powell was raising, got to about 2.5%, okay? And we knew that inflation was 2%. So what was the real rate, Tim? Real quickly, real quickly, 1.5%. Okay? No, 50 and basis points. No, so well, two and a half well it got to 2.5%. You could do math. Oh, well, sorry, 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 sorry. So, no, so, it was, so the point was, it was, all right, sorry, sorry. It was very, I, no, you know what I was thinking of? You know where the 10-year the got to 3.25%, okay? okay? So, like, so it was very accommodative still. Now, but the stock market dropped 20%. Right. As soon as we had a little bit of a growth scare. And I think that's really important to think about because we're talking about a three day sell off about one and a half percent. And this is, you know, like the longest sell off that we've had in a month and a half. The last thing I'll say about the banks that you just mentioned before. Did you guys see all the regional banks? They all guided down for the quarter here. So like if you talk about and you could say that's very specific to them. But I keep hearing stories and I think we're going to hear more and more where these REITs are going to be turning the keys in. To the banks, okay, and where who owns all that paper? It's the regional bank. So I just feel like the back half of this year is not going to be nearly as rosy, or just going to pay attention to things that the stock market doesn't seem to care about right now. In the meantime, though, I mean, well, even though it's been three straight days of losses for the markets, we're still up at well, Apple's at all-time highs. Exactly. And, you know, but but I don't think anybody's questioning. Maybe I'm wrong, but. I, most people assume we're having a recession. The question is how shallow. Savina yeah. said they think 0.8%. Like tiny dip. Um, but yeah. the, but to, to assume that the Fed can tighten sufficiently to get down to 2%, uh, first of all, when core inflation has been stuck at 53 for for nine months now um, and not take the economy deep into recession is, is naive. It's just there's no way we can do it. Um, meanwhile, if you think about the, the recession we should have had during COVID, which we didn't have because we threw so much M2 at the problem, and you're now trying to – it just the question really is, is, is how much should stocks begin to price in recession? And they haven't priced in much here. Yep. Uh, for more on all of this, let's bring in Joe Livornia of SNBC, Nico Securities America. He was formerly the chief economist for the National Economic Council. Joe, always great to see you. Um, Thank you. If the, Same if here, the Fed's inflation target really is 2 percent and remains 2 percent, does that mean that we have to have a recession? No, I'm listening to when Karen asked Steve about, you know, would they cut with inflation still above two? My answer is yes. It depends really on the unemployment rate. And and in the Fed's forecast, which showed 2% core inflation in 25, 
they've got their unemployment rate well above four percent. They lowered it from where it had been, but it's still well above four. I think it peaks at like four three or four five somewhere around there. That would be consistent with recession. So I would argue if the labor market weakens in the next few months and we see that rate move up above four, uh, we'll have a recession because we know historically going back to data to Second World War, uh, when the unemployment rate rises 50 basis points from its low, we've always had a downturn. And my guess is when that happens, when the Fed actually sees it, they will pivot, meaning they will focus on an, on the unemployment rate, which is a leading indicator of inflation, and they won't worry about where the inflation rate is at that point in time. So it sounds like you think there will be a recession, but then in response to recession, the Fed will quickly pivot. So that brings yes. into the picture a rate cut, if pivot means cut, this year. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, the I remember in 07, we at the time thought the economy was very weak. There was excess housing leverage, excess uh, allocation of capital to housing. And the Fed wound up pivoting very quickly, basically within three days in August of 07. They wound up cutting 100 basis points for the year. So if, again, this is the if, if the labor market breaks, and we'll get some data tomorrow, Melissa, that cover claims for the survey week, and they've been edging up, very gradually, but edging up. If we get some weak employment data in the next few months, and we're due for it, we've had, I think, 14 consecutive months where the street has underestimated payrolls. It's a record long in terms of length. Then I think things can happen very quickly, and you actually could see the Fed cut this year. So I would not rule that rate cut out. Absolutely not. Joe, it's Karen. Let me ask something. You talked about a 50 basis point increase in the unemployment rate um, triggering a recession. But has it ever been a 50 basis point increase with a base as low with a unemployment rate as low as it is now? Yes. Yes. We've had the unemployment rate uh, actually a couple of times below where it is now. We've had it one time around two and a half percent in the 50s and went up well over six. So, yes, it doesn't really matter where it's starting. Where it goes, where it rises, is going to be partly a function, Karen, of how deep the recession is. And uh, the reality is, whenever the next recession happens, we really have no idea if it's going to be deep or shallow. This notion it's going to be shallow, I'm not sure what it's predicated on. We thought when the economy, I say we collectively, when the, the recession hit in 08, it was going to be shallow. In fact, the economy even grew almost 2.5% in the second quarter of 08. Whether it's shallow or not will depend in part on what the Fed reaction function is to the economy at that time. And my guess is with the election next year and fiscal policy as messy as it is right now, you're going to get no fiscal relief. So when it comes, it could be a deep recession. Joe, you're, you're unlike many economists, in your, your, in meaning you're, you're cool because you like Van Halen. Um, but most economists aren't able to predict or even get out there and predict where the economy is going. Um, why I connected these two, I just wanted to point out that I met you at a Van Halen concert once. I do love Van Halen. I would say I know, wouldn't like. I'd say I love. I, I, you, you love Van Halen. I don't love that economists never seem to be willing to get out there and anticipate where the economy is going. And I don't mean you. Maybe I'm really talking about the Fed. If we all know that labor is going to slow, we all know the economy is slowing. Why can't the Fed say, I think the economy is going to be here in six months. So I'll take policy there right now. Why are we so data dependent? Why are we waiting on a lag we all know is there? The answer is, Tim, it's political, I think. And I think one of the reasons that uh, Chair Powell, I think he made a commitment to the president to get inflation down. And uh, again, it's a forecast that the rate now, it's up 3.4 to 3.7. History would say if it goes to uh, 4.0, you're going to have a recession. You'd be in recession. Uh, so I think it's that commitment to get inflation down and the uncertainty that it's a forecast. It doesn't, you know, it's a forecast it means it's, it may not happen. And, and to me, that's why Jay Powell has, has done what he's done. And they really want to see more evidence that they need to be where they want to be. 
But, Tim, this is also the litany or the history of the Fed. The Fed always overdoes it. And this would be yet another example of the Fed overdoing it, because when it happens in real time, for whatever reason, they forget about the lags and the politics may be such they have to keep pushing. And it's a mistake. Joe, thanks. Always good to see you. Joe thanks, everybody. Um, so Joe is basically saying, let's not believe the Fed here. He doesn't believe the Fed here. Steve was just saying Fed funds futures. They don't believe the Fed here. They don't believe what Jerome Powell said today on the Hill. Guy, I know what you're going to say. I don't know why I go to you. You don't believe the Fed at <laughs> yeah. all. Well, I mean, to stay with the theme, Jamie's been crying about higher right, rates so for quite some time. Of course, the, <laughs> of course, that Jamie being Jamie Dimon. So I would listen to him. And I understand what Joe is saying. But you have to ask yourself this. How bad will things be? And, and again, with the rhetoric that we heard for the Fed to be cutting rates at the back half of this year, it does not suggest that stocks will be continue on their merry way. So he may be right. But if he's right, I actually fear for what the uh, what the outcome is going to be in terms of the stock market. Coming up, an earnings alert on KB Home shares on the move after reporting results. Details on that quarter and the home building space next. Plus, chips taking a big breather after a huge run this year. Why these semi-stocks are pulling back and how you should play this space. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on KB Home. Shares of the home builder are volatile after posting both revenue and earnings beats in its latest quarter. The stock is up 65 this year, trading at its highest level since 2007. Diana Olick has got more on the company's report. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, the mantra for the builders appears to be demand. The analyst call is still going on right now, but at the top, CEO Jeff Metzger said buyers are demonstrating a higher sense of urgency than we saw earlier this year. So no surprise, KB beat nicely on the top and bottom lines. Metzger said in the release, the improvement in demand we started to see in February was sustained throughout our second quarter as we achieved monthly sequential increases in our net orders. He said they've lowered both build times and direct construction costs, but KB's gross profit margin dropped to 21% from 25%, they said mainly due to price decreases and other home buyer concessions together with higher construction costs and a shift in the mix of homes delivered. Now, the average sale price dropped 3% year over year, but the cancellation rate of 22%, it was up from 17% a year ago, but down quarter to quarter from 36%. So there, Melissa, is your urgency right in the number. Why are construction costs higher, Diana? I would have thought that they would be lower given the decline in commodities. Was it all wage inflation? Um, There's wage inflation, of course. That has to do with labor. But it's uh, actually 
the cost of lumber came down, but the cost of other things that go into the home are still much higher. So, I mean, with the headlines tend to be low, lumber's down, lumber's down. But when you look at some strange things that you wouldn't think go into the home that have to do with like HVAC systems and other things are actually a lot higher. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olek on KB Home. Uh, Karen, you were looking at this quarter. Looked pretty good. Yeah, it actually looked pretty good. I think, I mean, the, well, the gross margin being narrow with that would explain some of the, and, and the guide relative to the size of the beat on a revenue, which was really big, the guide sort of made it seem sort of muted for the rest of the year, although the commentary sounds pretty upbeat, actually. So there is a giant disconnect there in, in the whole, in the, I don't know, not just home building, but in the whole housing market in that you have demand there, but you have this giant, you know, wrench in the system of rates being where they are. Yet houses are forming. Millennials do want to buy homes. I guess you just need some time to get used to these rates. The average contract rate was of a 30-year fix, uh -huh. more 6.73 percent. So it really it didn't come down a lot at all during this quarter. I mean, that really worked against them if there was, you know, a headwind there. But but 90 percent of the mortgages outstanding are, are all, probably all below 4 uh, yeah. percent at this point. So no one's going anywhere. But yet, if you look at the recovery in the NAHB index, it's it's had the fiercest recovery over the last six months of any period other than coming out of COVID. So it, we've talked about the home builders. Guy's done a great job of flagging this a long time ago. It, you have a case where, first of all, the, the charts on these companies uh, are extraordinary. You look at uh, KBH, you know, somewhere around 52, 50 bucks. You have that May 21 resistance. A couple of the others have gone straight through, but the bigger home builders have a place to actually outperform a lot of the smaller guys because of their scale at this point. And, and I think the multiples are not terribly demanding. Guy? KBH has actually underperformed the rest of the group. You know, you made the point, the highest we've seen since 07. And you got to go back to March 06, I think, when this was a $65 stock. That was the all-time high. To Tim's point, you look at Tall Brothers, Pulte Homes, both of those stocks are significantly through their prior all-time high. They're off to the races. But I look at the numbers. You know, Diana mentioned gross margins. She was right to mention that was uh, sequentially lower at 21.4%, but it was better than the street was expecting. So the street had priced in sub-21. And then quickly, Mel, you look at deliveries. I mean, 3,665 deliveries versus expected of 29.65. That's significant because the price is held in. So... It's a really good quarter. It shouldn't be all that surprising, again, given the supply-demand fundamentals, which are still in place for the space. There's still a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A chip check on deck. Semi-stocks in the red today. But is this just a tech timeout before another big bump? The traders debate next. Plus, Biden's faux pas. The president's choice words for China's leader at a crucial time for the two countries. Was it just bluster or a real blunder? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Buzzkill on semis. The SMH semiconductor ETF dropping more than 2% for a fourth straight day of losses, also seeing its worst day in three weeks. Take a look at some of the individual names seeing big losses today. Intel dropping 6% after hosting an event with updates to its internal foundry model. That stock was the biggest laggard in the S&P 500 today. AMD dropping nearly 6%, while Qualcomm and Marvell each fell more than 3%. Dan, is this the beginning of the decline the demise of this trade. I don't know. I mean, listen, you know, like look at NVIDIA. You just said the SMH closed down two and a quarter percent. NVIDIA, which is a trillion, you know, trillion dollar market cap company, and it's literally encapsulated so much of the enthusiasm of this recent run, um, closed down one one point seven five percent. You know what I mean? So you have AMD and you have Intel, you know, down six percent. I think that those sorts of moves, we have not seen those in large cap tech stocks in a very long time, you would not like to see that kind of spread out a little bit to some of these other names because they will eventually get to a name like NVIDIA. And if you look at AMD, it filled in that gap from when NVIDIA gapped, okay? And so that gap in NVIDIA is massive. It's hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap. At some point, it will be filled. And I just don't, you know, obviously I don't know when, and it's been a hard trade trying to short it. Are you which, still in it? Yeah. Um, but it's been hard, and I keep defining my risk. Yeah, sooner or later, I'm going to have to give up. No? No, because it's interesting, because the way you interpreted NVIDIA's move today was that it should have fallen and it will fall. Yeah. Or you could say, on the flip side, it, it outperformed and held up well, and so therefore had good price action in the face of yeah, the Yeah, and so did Apple today. Down. It was so down 50 that, basis that attests points. to NVIDIA's strength here. Well, at some point with NVIDIA, I think you are running with the devil. And, and I think you've got a case where there's been a lot priced into this. And, and But I, I continue to think that the market has an enormous amount of, of positioning and momentum. And, and I think there's a lot of passive money that seems to be chasing here. So, uh, again, a lot of the reasons I hear bears not capitulating, and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about strategists that are out there with views on the street that have been quite negative. They're, they're saying this can run longer, and it can run longer because Karen mentioned that the Fed is in a position to, to play the ice cream man and actually be around a little bit, you know, uh, not until the end of July. You have uh, seasonal factors where the NASDAQ has its best month in July, if you look over history. I mean, there's reasons why you can melt higher here. Um, it doesn't mean it, it, it ascribes to fundamentals that, that I can believe in here, but I believe the market can go higher. Is running with the debt, is that some sort of reference? <laughs> yes, we are. We, I think I just got three Halen songs right uh, there. And I know the folks at home are playing along. So, Guy, quickly, your take on NVIDIA's price action. It was not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. But quickly, just to, we talked about this last week in AMD. They reported May 4th. Stock was down 10% on earnings. I mean, margins were not good. And then you had this, wait for it, Mel, eruption to the upside the next day when they announced seemingly this relationship with Microsoft where they're going to compete with NVIDIA. That stock proceeded to go up 55% over the next month and a half. Nothing changed other than the price. So, I mean, AMD's a great company. That last quarter was not particularly good. Price action was great. So NVIDIA surprises me. I think they have, I want to say they have an analyst. They have something coming up, which may be a catalyst. We'll see. But Man, that you're on the you're in the deep end of the pool in valuation with that one for sure, Melms. By the way, Mel, you could have just said deep end of the pool. Is that some sort of reference? To no, it but no? you you no. could have no. just you could have no. just said to guy, you know what, guy, you really got me. Uh, and that is one. That is one. Okay. 
Uh, thanks for the clarification. You might as well jump Coming to up. a commercial. I, you know, <laughs> Biden's China slip up. The faux pas the president made within basically a day of Secretary Blinken's visit that was considered successful in the country's corporate spy war unfolding beneath the surface. We've got more on that next. Plus, a big day for Bitcoin, the crypto breaking above a key level for the first time in over a month. White is getting investors in one name particularly excited. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks notching a third day of losses after Fed Chair Jerome Powell indicated more rate hikes are likely this year. The Dow dropping more than 100 points, the S&P falling half a percent, and the Nasdaq leading the losses down more than 1%. A few names bucking the trend, though, and trading near all-time highs. Home builders just talked about them. DR Horton and Pulte Group specifically, plus McKesson, Owens Corning, and Cardinal Health all hovering near those levels. Insurance stocks also seeing a bounce after last week's weakness. United Health, Elevance, and Humana all higher. Meantime, President Biden making a potentially big blunder at a campaign fundraiser in California. Biden referring to China's Xi Jinping as a dictator. The remarks coming just over a day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken wrapped up his first official visit to Beijing, saying the two countries had made progress on their strained relationship. The reaction from China, Tim, was maybe not surprisingly indignant, to say the least. No, and, and I, I tell you, I, I think this is a surprise. This was a bit unchained, I would say, by the president, because, I mean, this is not what you do in diplomatic circles. There's, there, other presidents have, have had much, I think, more clear examples of the D-word dictatorship, that is, um, that they haven't used. And, and I, I, I guess I'm just really surprised, considering the timing of... of what we had just done. We had just sent our secretary of state. There's an attempt to thaw. Um, and if you think about the Biden administration, there's been three or four times where um, I think they've gone into kind of, you know, crossed red lines, especially as it relates to the, the, the Taiwan relationship and things that I think, you know, leaving aside China doing something in Taiwan. But until then, and I'm not saying we need to, to be sitting here thinking that um, there couldn't be some uh, elements of the China-Taiwan relationship that could get very thorny and very bad for the world. But uh, I, I just, it's been surprising the way we've handled this uh, to me, especially when I do think that we've, we've done a lot to protect strategic interests in the tech sector and we will continue to do so. And, and I think there's a, a lot of uh, rancor to be worked through. Yeah, I mean, the Chinese foreign minister said this was a public political provocation. I'm sure he picked those words very carefully. Um, speaking with China here, we do have a new documentary premiering tonight. It's called China's Corporate Spy War. CNBC's Eamon Javers details a sting operation that took a, down a Chinese government spy who tried to steal jet engine technology from GE. He interviews the U.S. attorneys who investigated the case. Here's a first look. It's late winter, and in China, festivities to celebrate the Lunar New Year are rapidly approaching. The Ministry of State Security spy, Xu Yanjun, is receiving messages from the GE engineer, who he doesn't know is now a double agent for the FBI. Their chats are friendly, encouraging even. Then Xu makes a bold request. He asks for the engineer's laptop directory. He attaches instructions on exactly how well, here's he wants how you do it. To do it. Yes. Step one, create a notepad document. Step two, open it and entering the following content. So he's giving him literally step-by-step -step instructions on how to send him GE information. Yeah, and this is the type of document that should make U.S. companies nervous. This is exactly the steps that you go through if you want to copy your company computer and give it to China. Eamon Javers joins us now. Eamon, what a fascinating documentary. I, I've read through some of the other clips out there that have circulated today. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in terms of the effort against the United States to, you know, 
steal IP or, or steal whatever information? Does it go in waves? Does it does it increase when there are higher tensions between the two countries, such as now? It doesn't seem to go that way, Melissa, and I think largely because these operations take a long time to put together, right? So you don't have the sort of spikes moment to moment when the tensions increase. They say, okay, dial up a number of spy operations because these things take months, if not years. Uh, but what you do see is it's very coordinated with the Chinese companies on the back end. The companies are in communication, according to uh, people I've talked to, with the Chinese government and the Chinese spy agencies. And they literally give them a list of technology that they would like to get. The Chinese spy agencies then task their agents to go out into the world and find that. And that's what happened in this case that we detail in the documentary tonight involving GE Aviation. Um, the Chinese uh, Ministry of State Security officer found the GE engineer who had the specific knowledge that he wanted and then started working on that guy to try to get that guy to leak him that laptop directory with all the secret information on it. It, it, should there be extra concern for companies that have partnerships with, because that was a way you got into China in the first place for many yeah. U.S. companies, you have partnerships with Chinese companies, that those companies are at, are at particular risk? Yeah, absolutely. When you do the joint venture in China, that gives the Chinese government a lot more leverage over you. You know, there are some companies that don't have a joint venture agreement. I believe Apple is sort of a keynote example of that. Other companies do have that. Uh, so that puts you in a different basket. But I talked to Senator Marco Rubio for this documentary, and he's the ranking member on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said, in his view, American companies are committing long-term suicide in their approach to China, uh, and that they're simply exposing too much of their intellectual property by doing these joint ventures and doing these deals in China uh, that are risking their long-term survival as companies uh, in exchange for short-term gain. And he said that the CEOs, in, in many cases, understand this, but they're doing this anyway because they have a quarterly number that they've got to hit. They don't, they're not worried about what's going to happen in five to ten years because they probably won't be the CEO of the company by then. Eamon, thank you. It's a fascinating yeah. look. We hope everybody will tune in. The CNBC documentary, China's Corporate Spy War, premieres tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern time. It's chilling, absolutely chilling, some of the examples that Eamon has in this. Uh, coming up, a June boom for Bitcoin. Why the rally in crypto? Well, we'll bring you the details in the trade next. And throughout June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month. Here's the president and CEO of Vlad. Coming out for me at work helped surge my career. I wasn't hiding who I was. That takes an extraordinary amount of energy and time and resource that you could be putting against your career, your job, your clients, your employees. And so for me, when I was in the magazine business and I finally came out, I saw my career take off. So be who you are. Bring your full self to work. It will only make your career even better. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin cracking the $30,000 mark for the first time since mid-April today as traders gear up for major players like BlackRock to jump into the space. Earlier this week, the institutional giant submitted an application for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Investors betting that gives hope to Grayscale's planned conversion to an ETF. The Bitcoin trust is trading at the smallest discount to net asset value since last September, Karen. Yes. However, it's still not the smallest discount that it's ever traded at. And in fact, it right. used to trade at a significant premium, premium. because there yeah. was no other way to get into Bitcoin for most retail investors. 
So fast forward to here, we're down, I don't know, the, the now we're at a discount of 30%. Mm -hmm. The average for the last year has been down 38%. So it's not that much of a close. Makes me think there's room to go. And if you combine that with the underlying also moving up, that's a nice thing. Um, I, I think it could go, I could, the GBTC part, I think it could go higher. Mm -hmm. Also, we saw Wisdom Tree. Did they file a uh, yeah, ETF so as well? BlackRock About five filed people first, have. And then, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a flood. People, yeah. and it makes you think, so, yeah. what do they know? BlackRock know something yes. if everybody right. else is following? This is yes. an interesting take that Cameron Winklevoss tweeted earlier today. Anyone watching the flurry of ETF filings understands the window to purchase pre-IPO Bitcoin before ETFs go live and open the floodgates is closing fast. So I thought that was yes. a, sort of an interesting spin on it. Yeah, especially as there's, there's been so much volatility in around the exchanges, regulatory as it relates to them. Listen, Coinbase, Crypto.com, these are exchanges a lot of pros use. There's a lot of like the sorts of they've been building the infrastructure where, you know, semi-pros and pros can trade on them. And it's been a, an easy, accessible thing also for retail. These ETFs change the game, I think, as from a whole host of reasons. Yeah. So there's, I think the, the thing people are targeting around the BlackRock filing that's a little bit different is it allows uh, surveillance of the underlying trust by NASDAQ, for example. And that's the kind of at least, you know, it begins to give both more, it's not regulatory oversight, although it does begin to put more accountability. It's just all of this is fascinating because, you know, where were we three weeks ago with the attack on Coinbase? And the, the SEC seemingly has been gnashing its teeth and saying, first of all, let's determine what are truly registered as securities and what are not. And if they're securities, you're going to be under our watch. And, and but that's the whole point. This is why the ETFs should be successful. And there should be some meeting of the minds, because this is a bunch of well-known established players saying, look, we want to be in the space. We want to run this. Um, and in many cases, if you're talking about an ETF, you're talking about an SEC governed 40 Act fund, which has a whole slew of rules that I think is very good. Speaking of Coinbase, option traders are betting today's Bitcoin bounce is good news for the stock. Brian Sutton joins us with the action. Brian. Yeah, traders were gobbling up calls. Basically, we saw a complete flip of puts to call ratio with heavy call buying. This has occurred over the last five days where you're seeing more calls to put trade. What really was interesting was the 19,000 or so option call options that traded that are expiring this Friday. These were the June 60 calls, buyers mostly at 90 cents, meaning break even about $60.90 above there. That's unlimited profit potential, only risking 90 cents. Now, obviously, these options expire by Friday, so it's a little risky in that sense. But if Coinbase sort of goes in the money on these call options, trades above this $60 level, you could be looking at a very well-defined head and shoulders bottom situation here. Coinbase is really tracked. Bitcoin very well, meaning if if Bitcoin is down, Coinbase is usually down. And the two move lockstep. They've kind of separated over the last couple of months here. I think that's maybe because of all the regulation coming down the pipeline that Tim talked about. But we see a pop above 60. Maybe Coinbase moves higher and moves with Bitcoin after that. All right, Brian. Thanks, Brian Stutland. For more options action, tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Modi on the move. India's prime minister making a landmark visit to the United States, meeting with top leaders and CEOs where he is off to next and what it means for investing in India. The details ahead on Fast. Welcome back to Fast Money. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the U.S. for his first state visit, and he's already been very busy. Here's a video of his arrival in New York City yesterday where he met with Tesla's Elon Musk. Modi will attend a state dinner at the White House tomorrow, and he's also expected to meet a slew of U.S. CEOs, including the heads of Apple, Alphabet, and Microsoft. 
Tim, how do you feel about India? There's been a lot of foreign inflows into Indian stocks. It's, and if you look at the INDA, it's a $5 billion, you know, iShares uh, India ETF that, that's really been on, on a rocket and has actually broken through some significant upside. I think around 44, 45, you have some resistance, but uh, big names in there, Reliance Industries, uh, ICICI Bank, which is you know, essentially their JP Morgan. Uh, India, relative to China, is, is, a, is a really a pairs trade that favors India in so many ways right now in terms of both the growth, uh, a, a deflationary environment, which that's a big debate, but, but clearly India has always had issues with inflation. Uh, a lot of it has been energy inflation. So as oil prices have stabilized and come down, it's very good for India. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating time to be investing in that part of the world. And I, you know, you're not buying it uh, at the bottom, but you're certainly, for the asset class, this is the part of the Asian exposure I think you really want. Your flambe, uh, Karen, has Mexico. Yes. Um, would you look at India? I would. I would. Reasons? A lot of the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, the nearshoring, there's the geography of it makes Mexico unique. But we've seen a lot of companies, like Tim was saying, already start to diversify and they need supply chains in India. Yes, I would. Guy, what if China becomes, uh, what if they have a lot of stimulus? Do you think that money then gets redirected to there? To back to China, perhaps mm. they have their own issues. But I think Tim is right to point out the levels of resistance in INDA, which I think is 30 percent or so financials. Forty four was a high a couple times last one in December. But this should get up to that 50 level, which we last saw, I think, in November of 2021. So I would take a look at that. At some point, Mel, everybody's uh, going to want some. Oh, it's just really know what happened. Uh, I'm going to dive down into yeah. this one here um, really quickly. You know, <laughs> Biden's comment about. She, like Modi, one of the biggest criticisms is his assault on democracy in this country. You know what I mean? And it, it's kind of interesting. This is like a very common sort of criticism, especially since he won re-election in 2019. You know, there's been oversight thrown out about election supervision. You know, a lot of stuff going on there, too. So it's funny that he cozies up to uh, Modi here. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade time. Guy Dami. Cradle's going to rock with that EJ doc tonight. Uh, Robin Hood, Melms. Tim? Yeah, when it's love, it's Walmart. I mean, I think the margin accretion there, they've made major investments in technology and their people, and I think Walmart's going to go. Chairwoman. Yes, we are seeing a rotation. Name like Elevance, which was up today, will have room to go higher. Elevance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm bearishly positioned in the XLF. That would be banks. But I think you can also be that way in the KRE. That's the region. And stocks in general. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for watching. Not Mad Money with Tim Kramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. 
for the love of home.